All these buttons and gadgets that we have to fool around with now are amazing and sometimes can be quite uh, interesting and a little bit difficult. As you see on the screen, we're going to be studying in the book of Isaiah this morning, so we'll be turning to Isaiah chapter 1. And while you're turning there for our reading and text, uh, we will welcome you and express, especially to our visitors, and we have several today who have returned home to be with us, uh, family members of families here, and we're so happy to see all of you. And our ushers will be coming down the aisle with study guides. And uh, please take one, write some notes, and take down scriptures and study further the lesson that will be presented. And I would uh, echo what uh, Michael said a minute ago about the Vacation Bible School. I came through the basement this morning and I thought, well, it looks a lot different in here than it did this past week. Uh, we had a great VBS and a wonderful theme of camp out and some very powerful and practical lessons uh, that were based on that theme. And we closed with a study of the importance of keeping the fires burning, meaning that we are to remain faithful in our service to the Lord from day to day. Our lesson this morning is entitled, When God Hid His Eyes. Have you ever hidden your eyes? I saw some of the children playing hide and seek during vacation Bible school. And they was, some would tell the one who was going to be the seeker, hide your eyes, hide your eyes so we can go and hide. Hide your eyes. Have you ever done that? Have you ever seen something so terrible and atrocious that you want to cover your eyes? Think about a mother who stands over the mangled body of a child killed in an accident. And she cries, I cannot bear to look. I just can't bear to look. Some of us have probably been in situations like that. We have seen things that so hurt us and pained us to the very core of our being that we just wanted to hide our eyes and not look. Well, there is a passage in this chapter of Isaiah 1 that reminds us that God hid His eyes. Let's read from this chapter. Beginning in verse 1, we learn that the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Here is the beginning of the discourse. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. 
from the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth and a vineyard, as a hut and a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of the assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. You are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands... I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Those 15 verses serve as a basis for our lesson today and the remainder of the chapter as well. I want you to look again at that verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. In that period of time, many of the Jews would pray standing with their arms extended to heaven, looking upward into heaven and beg and plead with God. He said, you make many prayers, and no doubt that was the posture that they assumed. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. That is a sad statement. And it's one that should cause all of us to ponder. <clears throat> okay, fellas, I'm going to have to have... Some help back in the booth, I guess. This is the question that we posed earlier of a parent not being able to look upon the body of a child that had been brutally killed, maybe in an accident, maybe in some other way. Do you remember that horrific scene that we saw in Oklahoma City or from Oklahoma City many years ago? When that building was blown up, and all the suffering, and, and you just wanted to turn your face from the screen of the TV because you thought, how could anyone do something so cruel, cold, and calculated? 
God has had enough of these people. They have really just lost their way. So as we proceed in the study, I want us to think about Isaiah, and then I want us to think about some of the things that are here stated. God sees and knows. The Bible reveals to us over and over again that He does see and know what is going on. In Genesis 1, time and time again, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. And when He came to man and woman being created, and God saw that it was very good. When He's viewed the whole of creation, He sees the good and the evil. Look at Genesis 6, the story of Noah. We see him looking down on the earth and seeing that the thoughts and the intents of men's hearts uh, were evil continually. And it repented God that He had made man. So terrible was the wickedness of that day that He was sorry that He made man. Think about that. He had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and transplanted them, you might say, in paradise, in a land flowing with milk and honey. But they had refused to do His will over and over and over again. In Second Chronicles 16, verses 9 and following, you read about the eyes of the Lord running to and fro over the land. He sees all that goes on. It is indeed the all-seeing eye of Jehovah, as Hebrews 4.13 reminds us. You'll notice that the psalmist said that his eyes are, quote, upon the righteous. His eyes behold the nations, and his eyes are upon the faithful. All of those statements are set forth by the psalmist to remind us that God sees all. He cannot be escaped. Have you ever looked on our currency at that eye? It's there. Reminds us of the all-seeing eye of Jehovah. Now, as we proceed with this study, let's look at Isaiah for a moment. And... Uh, We have these delays. I am very sorry. I want us to look at God's promises regarding the land. That's the next slide. Let's back up one, Justin, if you can. Right, there we go. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, which is the series of speeches delivered by Moses to the second generation of the Israelites uh, who had... Uh, been born and had come of age after they left the land of Egypt. So before entering into the land, Moses rehearsed the law to them. It's a little bit different than what you find in Exodus, but not a great deal. It's delivered to them in view of the fact that they did not really experience the brutality of Egypt uh, and the bondage that the people had there, but reminding them that they were inheriting a land and 
They would live in houses that they didn't build and all of that as we learned a few nights ago. It was not like Egypt. Verse 10 reminds them. Now this land is not going to be like Egypt. There's going to be hills and valleys. It's going to be well watered, whereas Egypt was primarily desert. I was talking to a man not long ago who flew in a plane over the areas of the uh, area of Israel and Syria and all of those countries over there. And he said, you know, till this day, when you fly over Israel, it is verdant. There's, there's life, you know, uh, greenery and so on. And he said, when you fly across that border into another country, it's just like you go into another world. He said, from the air, there is such a distinction in that little area of the world to the surrounding parts of it. And I, when I read this, I thought about his telling me that. And it struck a, a chord. In verse 12, he says that he cared for the land in all seasons. He promised them that they would receive the early and the latter rains. Rain was of primary importance in that part of the world. It didn't rain a whole lot. The Mediterranean weather was kind of unpredictable, I guess. And in verses 13 through 15 of Deuteronomy 11, he promises that he would continue to bless them so long as they obeyed him. He said, I will take care of you. But when you jump to Isaiah 1, nearly 700 years have elapsed. Children of Israel have been in the land for about seven centuries. For 400 of those years, they were ruled by judges. And then for another 120 years, you had Saul and David and Solomon. And then there was a civil war that erupted and the nations became, or the nation became divided. The 10 northern tribes was called Israel. The two southern tribes were called Judah. Judah is where Jerusalem was. Samaria would be built. There would be a city of Samaria built. That would become the capital of that northern kingdom, which would eventually go into captivity at the hands of the Assyrians, never to regain its identity as a nation. Now, in Isaiah's day, you have the nation of Judah, he prophesied to both nations but Israel would be taken into captivity and then he would turn his attention to Judah. And the brunt of the book deals with God's relationship with Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And that's to whom he is speaking here. But they had become so corrupt as we saw in our reading a while ago. That's the reason God hid his eyes. He was so disappointed in his people. 
his sons and daughters that he had so lovingly cared for throughout the centuries, protecting and providing for them, but they have turned their backs on him. Now let's look at Isaiah the man. He is said to be the son of Amos, spelled with a Z. This is not the Amos that we know who was the prophet. No doubt a different man. Verse 1 tells us he saw a vision. Prophets would often see visions of things that needed to be revealed. God would reveal what needed to be said in this vision and that would be passed on to the people. Later on in the scriptures, we read of Daniel interpreting dreams and visions and seeing visions himself. It is concerning Judah and Jerusalem. If you look at the names of the kings that are cited as being in power at, during this time, they are Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, if you will go to the book of 2 Kings and read chapters 15 through 21 and the book of 2 Chronicles and read chapters 26 through 33, you will find the events described in the books of Kings and Chronicles that Isaiah is dealing with in the book of Isaiah. He was contemporary with Hosea. Some people pronounce it Hosea and Micah. And as we stated earlier, the children of Israel had been in the land for close to 700 years at this particular time. Now let's look at God's complaint against Judah that's lodged in verses 2 through 4. Notice He calls the heavens and the earth as His witnesses. God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1. So he now calls his creation, as it were, as witnesses against the people. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And time and time again in the scriptures, we find creation, the created order, from the plants and the animals all the way to man, used to show how powerful, how wonderful, how good and great God really is. You'll notice that He had nourished and brought up children. He is a very capable Father. He loves His sons and daughters. He has been good to them. He has provided for them. He gave them this land flowing with milk and honey, and He had blessed them during their residency of that land. Over and over again, He had poured out the bounties and blessings of heaven upon them, and they rebelled against Him. That's what Isaiah says, isn't it? But they rebelled against Him. Notice that he says that they are not as thoughtful as the ox and the donkey. Those two animals were considered the dumbest of beasts. But God says even the dumb beasts know where their master's crib is. And they are more 
servant-oriented than my people are. Think about that. Comparing these people to animals and saying that the animals are more discerning and more grateful than the people are. He said, they do not know, they do not consider. And then he describes them as a sinful nation. Ingratitude is probably one of the most common of all sins. You know, it's not very difficult at all to say thank you. And we especially need to be grateful to our Heavenly Father, don't we? He sends His rain on all of us, causes His sun to shine on all of us. He gives us our daily bread. How grateful we ought to be. A third point that we want to look at is the desperate condition of this nation. The nation of Israel was very, very ill. They were dealing with a major disease. He said, you'll be stricken again. Why? Because you go back to the same sins over and over and over again. He said, you have a head problem and you have a heart problem. Your thought processes are not like they ought to be, and the emotional state of your heart is not like it ought to be. They, no doubt, were filled with lust instead of love. They were more concerned about their own desires and having the fineries of life with all the trimmings, and they were in doing the will of God. And He is not at all uncertain about their condition. You'll notice that He said the whole body, from the sole of the foot to the head, is filled with putrefying sores that have not been treated. They have not been bound up. They have had no ointment put on them. Now that's a sordid picture, isn't it? That is a sickening, nauseating picture. You remember the man who was full of sores and the dogs came and licked them? One commentator said of that particular individual, perhaps that was the only thing that soothed him were the dogs licking the sores. Do you remember Job? who had the boils from his feet to his head. Now that's a pathetic picture, isn't it? That's how God describes these people. They were sin sick. And the sad thing about it is, perhaps the saddest thing of all is, they refused treatment. They evidently had got accustomed to their condition. People can live in sin and rebellion against God so long that they think that's the way they ought to live. They know no other lifestyle. And sadly, many don't want any other lifestyle. How often have we heard it said, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to live life my way, like Sinatra saying. I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, as often as I want to do it. And that's the philosophy by which they live. Regardless of who else is hurt 
are bothered by their behavior. Very narcissistic. Very selfish. Isaiah said, if there hadn't been a very small remnant, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember what God did to them? He destroyed them from off the face of the earth. And it's believed by some at least that the remains of that civilization is under the waters of the Dead Sea. Perhaps so. But they were destroyed because their sin was so great. The desperate condition of that nation should teach us something about this nation and all nations who forget God and turn from Him. The amazing thing is that they kept on going through religious rituals. I want you to look at God's reaction to their ceremony. That's really all it was. It really wasn't worship that was offered in spirit and truth out of a deep adoration for God and His goodness. No, it was just a ceremony. A ritual that had become customary. You notice that he seeks to get their attention by saying, Here, you rulers and you people, hear the word of the Lord. That is a needed admonition today. Preachers need to be calling people to hear the word of the Lord, not the current social thoughts of sociologists and all kinds of other, quote, authorities. Let's go back to the authority. Hear the word of God, the one who created us. Listen to what he has to say. And he says, to what purpose were all your sacrifices? We don't give to God because He needs something. We do not bring our gifts to Him to satisfy or placate a need or necessity of His. We do not worship Him with our hands as though He needs anything. Our worship springs from hearts that are filled to the overflowing with gratitude and admiration for His power, His greatness, and His ability to give and to take away. He said to them, I've had enough. That's another dreadful thought, isn't it? When God comes to a point in time where He says, I've had enough. He had said that about Sodom and Gomorrah. I've had enough. He told Abraham, if you can find ten righteous people in that, uh, that area, I will pardon them. I will not destroy them. Not even ten righteous souls could be found. There were only four that left. He said, you've trampled my courts to no avail. It's like they have come into his courts on occasion and, and just 
that's really all it amounted to. They walked in and trampled the courts, walked out. Their hearts were far from them. And as you read that text again, their offerings were futile. They were unbearable. They were abominable. They were troubling to God because their lives did not live up to what God expected of them. He had told them He would bless them, and He had. So He reveals to them the cure in verses 16 through 20. He said, you're a sick nation. Here is the cure. He said, wash, put away, cease to do evil, learn to do good. You'll have to read those verses 16 through 20 on your own. But as you look at them, he will tell them to clean up your act. Put away these evil things. There's always a positive and a negative to pleasing God. The positive is do good. The negative is put away evil. And that's always the message delivered to people by the Almighty God. Still is today. When we come to become children of God, we must turn from sin and turn to Him. That's the essence of repentance, isn't it? And as we complete our obedience in becoming a child of His, being born of the water and of the Spirit, and are baptized into Christ, Paul in Romans 6 reminds those Roman brethren, you have been baptized into Christ, but you do not continue in sin that grace may abound. You're not to live that sinful lifestyle anymore. You turn your back on that and proceed with your eye toward heaven, never looking back. No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is worthy of the kingdom. So we keep our eye on the gold. He said to them, seek justice that had fallen in their land. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. All of these admonitions indicate that they were not doing justly. They were giving aid to and abetting those who oppressed the downtrodden and the unfortunate. They were not taking care of those who were fatherless. They were not treating properly and with respect those who had been left alone and were widows. Remember, James talks about the fatherless and the widows in James 1, 27. The care of them is a part of that pure religion before God. All of the things that God says in this connection shows us that it's the most reasonable thing in the world to follow Him. That would be the natural thing to do. Why? Because He gave us life. He is our creator, our sustainer, and therefore our ultimate judge. As Paul states in Acts 17, God reaches out to these people. He will forgive and He will bless if, and this is a big if, if we are willing and obedient as seen in verse 19. He tells them that in no uncertain terms. 
But he reminds them in verse 20 that a horrible, fearful, terrible fate awaits those who refuse. Yes, there is a cure for the problem of sin. He says, come therefore, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as white as snow. God has the ability to do that. This is a lesson from history. Things written aforetime are written for our learning, and from Isaiah's prophecy we learn a lot about our nation, about the nations of the world, about ourselves as individuals. We learn about God, His greatness, His goodness. In many instances today, there's no doubt that weekly rituals have replaced regular and daily devotion. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. It's not a matter of coming to a building somewhere, occupying a pew in some house of religion. One time a week or two times a week, even three or four times a week. And then just going our merry way and forget about it. During our vacation Bible school, we learned that we are to read it through. We are to pray it in. And we are to live it out. So that means that what we hear from God's Word when we come to a service such as this should affect us in our day-to-day lives. Occasional offerings sometimes replace regular righteousness. That's what had happened in Isaiah's day. Such pleases God no more now than it did then. He expects the same basic response to him and to his word as he did in Isaiah's day. God speaks we are to listen, to give heed, and to obey. Will you not submit to Him now? If you say, well, don't know about that. Why? Why not now? Charles Spurgeon said one time that now, now, now is the only time you have. So why not take advantage of it? Obey the gospel. Be restored to your first love. If you're subject to that sweet invitation, come as we stand and as we sing.